Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. This is the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. I am your host, Seth Greenland. With me are my co-hosts, Tom Lutz. Hello, Seth. And Lori Weiner. Hey. Remember that cup of coffee you had this morning? The scents of cinnamon and cream that emanated from it, wafting through your breakfast room? How much do you miss that cup of coffee? How much do you yearn for it? How much do you long for it? Today, we're going to be talking about the idea of nostalgia and how it can really mess us up and how it works in life and in literature. We'll be discussing first lines of novels, Call Me Ishmael, that kind of thing. We'll go backstage at the Deathmatch with Adrian Todd Zuniga. And in this week's epic poetry smackdown, Juan Felipe Herrera presents a poem by Matthew Lipman and Alexandra Sakaridis will be explicating the Emma Lazarus poem about the Statue of Liberty. Nostalgia makes me limpid. It makes me moist. It makes me <laughs> want to... I have a physical reaction when I begin thinking about the things that I miss because there, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I've had a dream about something that's gone on in the past and I am so utterly overwhelmed by it. I just, rather than getting up, I pull the sheets over my head. I, I miss I miss the breakfast room. What's what's a breakfast room? You obviously didn't grow up in the suburbs. No, we had a breakfast room. A in breakfast the suburbs. room. I know. Is did that... you have a gift wrapping room? We did not have a gift <laughs> okay. wrapping room. We were we were poor, <laughs> so we had a breakfast room. But there's a terrific piece on the LARB site this week about Nabokov's speak memory. Nabokov was one of the great nostalgists. I know you have some thoughts about that. Well, I I, ha- I don't have a lot of thoughts about Nabokov's nostalgia, although he was, as a white Russian, they're all, they're all nostalgic. Well, right? white Russians are the greatest nostalgists. Yeah. Um, but that's, a, that's one kind of nostalgia. It's a nostalgia for uh, a lost past. And I think that is not how nostalgia functions most often, is, is this weird feeling that the present is about to be lost. You know, the most nostalgic people in the world are high school students, high school seniors who are just about to graduate. So are you, are you saying that the purest form of nostalgia actually is a form of anticipation of absence? Exactly. Anticipatory nostalgia is the, is, the, is the central form of nostalgia. And I think that the novel itself, what you're reading about is something that's already happened. You know it's already happened when you're reading about it. You, you are being told, I walked down the street and then I went. And you know that it's going to be the past tense all the way to the end, worrying about what's already passed when it hasn't happened yet. And yet we think of the novel, the, the novel as, as it exists today has existed for, what, about 400 years, right? And so clearly it taps into something very human, this, this idea of anticipatory loss. Is it possible to think back upon your life without nostalgia? But of course, if something horrible happened, you wouldn't have any nostalgia for it. I, there are lots of parts of my life that I do not look back at with nostalgia at all. Is it the twin of regret? Oh, that's interesting. Is it? Is it the evil twin of regret? Is is the idea of regret some part of nostalgia? Or is exactly right? Is is regret a form of nostalgia? Really, a, a desire to rewrite the past, to not only inhabit it but to shift it around to a way that's more pleasing to us. Yeah. If we take the the Great Gatsby, which is the American novel par excellence of nostalgia, and it is also it's a novel of great regret. Uh, the the nostalgia and the regret are part of the same complex. Well, I I feel that nostalgia isn't what it used to be, but 
Uh, that's that's an old one. No, I, I, but the great French novel, or you could even say the great novel of nostalgia, is In Search of Lost Time. And, you know, he doesn't finish it. I mean, he hasn't polished the last three volumes when he dies. And I do think that getting, he's a writer, he's getting ready. He's, he's already withdrawn from the world and is living in this room. His parents are, have died and he's getting ready for death and he's remembering his life. And I was just going to pose the question, is it possible to remember your life without nostalgia? Oh, that's and of, course, and of yeah. course, you're talking about Proust. Yes, I am. Yeah, right. I mean, one of the things that, that the high school senior is, is worried about is that they're withdrawing from that life. They are leaving that life. Everybody's leaving that life. In The Gatsby, everybody's leaving that life. And the moments when the, when the people in the novel are not leaving the life, they're bored to tears and, they're, and, and you know, it's uh, Jordan Baker and Daisy Buchanan laying around on the couch um, complaining about things, right? And in Proust, too, the behavior and the concerns of the people in society, he does see as superficial. But when they're laden with that layer of nostalgia, then it becomes something more. Yeah. Of course, we're in the golden age of the memoir. Speak memory is very early in that in that history. But the memoir is often suffused with nostalgia. Well, the arc of the memoir is such a fascinating thing because I think it began as uh, a way to conjure a nostalgic past. And what the memoir has evolved into today is a chronicle of self-laceration. Because if you look at what people are reading, it's it's the drinking memoir, it's the heroin memoir, it's the incest memoir, it's the divorce memoir. It, these are not subjects one would want to be nostalgic about. It might even seem like the, the memoir is, is killing off nostalgia. But the of course, nostalgia keeps finding new adherents. Every year there's a new crop of high school students. There's a new crop of students graduating from college. Nostalgia is an ongoing condition because the present, is never satisfactory. Why? Why not the future then? Why the past? I have to think about that. Okay. Why, that, that's a really good question. Why not the future? Well, for people like Rob Latham, it is the future, right? Like people who are obsessed with. I think that there are. The there, yeah, there are people for whom you know science fiction is a central genre, mm-hmm. and they're in their reading life and in their kind of way of thinking about the world, and they are exactly. Uh, people who think about the future as a, as a response to the unsatisfactory present rather than the past. You would say that nostalgia is the refuge for the terminally unimaginative. <laughs> it may be. It may be. Uh, hence, hence the classic status of The Great Gatsby. There we go. And so, so we beat on Boats Against the Current, borne back it ceaselessly to, to the Gatsby. Los Angeles <laughs> Review of Books. <laughs> Adrian Todd Zuniga is the P.T. Barnum of literature today. And Tom, you have somehow tricked him into getting involved with that radio show. Yeah, he, he has reinvented the literary reading. We went to one where it was very well attended, a well-liked author. And he read like this. And when I came down to the thing, I went to the same way and came with the end ring. You could not, you couldn't even tell the words apart. It was excruciating. It had not a single inflection. It was worse than bad theater. And it just went on and on and on. And 45 minutes later, well, you notice the worse the reader is, the longer they read. <laughs> Have you noticed that? Inv- invariably. Yeah, Makes the, a kind of sense. Straight physical law. You've done literary deathmatch. I have done literary deathmatch. I have triumphed. I have the medal <laughs> on the wall of my office. But why don't you tell people what? Yeah, to... can you describe what goes on? 
what happens is he it's a it's kind of a standard reading, right? You read something, but then he holds his hand over your head, and the crowd cheers, and everybody's drinking, and and he he turns it into a spectacle. Yeah, it's it's built around the concept of a reading, but it's very very unlike a reading. It's quite theatrical, and there's yelling and lots of alcohol flowing. And do people boo? <laughs> not, not a lot of booing, but there's a lot of cheering, and 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 he really knows how to rile up a crowd. He's terrific. He brings a stand-up comedian's mentality to yeah. the the book reading. And as an author, I have to tell you, I cannot stand book readings. I have developed a serious aversion to them since I began publishing. The worst. They're they're just horrible to sit through. And what he does that's is that's why he, we sponsor a lot of them. And he helps he helps authors who are who are performance challenged uh, get their thing across. And he's yeah. he's a gift to literature around the world. And I say around the world, not metaphorically. I mean, he does these things in San Francisco, in Helsinki, in London, in Dublin. Singapore. It's incredible, really. And he is tireless, and God knows how he does it. And he's a very entertaining character. So I asked him to come in and just do, and tell us uh, some stories from the road. When it comes to literary readings, a lot of people don't relate a literary reading with a standing ovation and people absolutely losing it. But the one time that happened in Literary Deathmatch Land, uh, we were in San Antonio. It was the debut of the show there. Uh, There was an open bar before the show, which helped. But uh, the fourth and final reader of the show was a man named Antonio Sacra, who's a storyteller, one of the great storytellers ever. And he had written this story that was so beautiful, and it was about basically being a stripper as an artist, that effectively as a writer, he was just stripping for money. You know, he was just writing for money and he was giving himself over and he was allowing this abuse of himself to try to communicate these things and make people feel these things. By the end of it, people had were like standing up and women, beautiful women, beautiful Texas San Antonio women, were just running to the stage holding dollar bills up and launching them on the stage. And then uh, he did go out to, to help someone so they could put it in you know, into his uh, belt, space, I don't know, uh, into his underwear, let's say. And it was one of the greatest things I'd ever seen because to see a standing ovation like that for a reading and just the crowd was electric and he won the finale, which is all we can ever ask. Well, I mean, that is the amazing thing about Literary Deathmatch, right? You you end up with the kind of, kind of a rock concert applause rather than uh, yeah. polite literary clap, 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 clap. It's weird. Well, the whole idea is that we create this sensation of sport so that you, at the end, you are rooting so much for this person to win. And when you're invested in the story, you feel like it's totally fine just to go nuts because it totally is. It's a really, it's a really magical thing. And Antonio Sacra, that guy, genius. This is the LARB Radio Hour brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. Alexandra Sakaridis is with us. She writes a column for the site called Poems We Think We Know. I love this series. I'm always surprised by how much I learn. What do you have for us today, Alexandra? Today I thought we'd talk about Emma Lazarus and her famous poem at the base of the Statue of Liberty. This was the poem that kicked off my series because although we know the lines, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, most of us forget the rest. And we shouldn't. The poem is quite remarkable from start to finish. Here it is. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. 
From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she, with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. What I'm struck by, Alexandra, because everybody just remembers the tired, poor, huddled masses bit, is how remarkably good that poem is when you hear the whole thing read. Well, it's a Petrarchan sonnet, so it exists in two parts, an opening eight-line section, which describes the statue, followed by the six-line section, which is the monologue that the statue is imagined to speak. The rhymes are perfect, and the meter is calibrated to fit the poem's emotions. The poem is filled with alliteration and simple adjective noun phrases, as well as compound hyphenated words. But just when we think it might be a formally simple poem, it displays a mastery of syntax and rhythm through the enjambment of certain key lines like, and her name, beat, mother of exiles. William Everett, who was heading up the committee that was raising money to build a pedestal for the Statue of Liberty, asked Lazarus to write a poem to aid in these efforts. She was at first initially reluctant, but eventually took him up on the offer. Without ever seeing the statue in person, she wrote the poem and supplied the committee with a manuscript of the poem, which was sold at an auction on December 3, 1883, where she read it aloud. Several prominent literary types were impressed with the poem, such as James Russell Lowell, who wrote to her to say that he knew from experience just how hard it is to write when the subject is chosen for you. Lazarus had published her first book of poems and translations in 1866, when she was just 17. By 1883, she had published many volumes, as well as lots of pieces in popular periodicals of the day. Like most other 19th century American women writers, she didn't simply write in one genre. She wrote narrative and epic poetry, translations, criticism, reviews, stories, a novel, prose romance, and a historical tragedy. But maybe even more importantly, she wrote on a wide variety of topics, many of which were international in their scope and concerns. She was actually writing about the plight of Jews in Europe when Everett's approached her. On January 11, 1882, the London Times published an article entitled The Persecution of the Jews in Russia. And this is most likely the source from which Lazarus first learned of the atrocities that had been occurring in Russia for the previous eight months. The article is filled with shockingly detailed accounts of the cruelties that had been plaguing Jews in the region. Lazarus had always been interested in her Jewish heritage, and she had been working with Jewish refugees at the Ward's Island Immigration Center for about a year at this point. She would go on to write about this, ultimately advocating for a separate Jewish nation. Ah, so the poem is in part about that. In part, yes, but it's complicated. Lazarus was aware of a variety of forces, the problems facing Jews in other parts of the world, but also the anti-immigration sentiment in America. I think once you know this history, you realize that this poem which reads like a patriotic, optimistic, warm embrace of all immigrants to America's shores, is a kind of fantasy. When we repeat her lines today, we often do so as if they sum up what America was or is, when that's not actually the case. Thanks for reading and explicating that poem, Alexandra. I'm actually going to go home and take another look at it. Uh, much more about Lazarus and her poem uh, and other poems in this series can be found on the website, lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks, Alexander. Hello, this is 
Juan Felipe Herrera. And I want to introduce a really good friend of mine, a really good poet, Matthew Lipman. We've known each other for quite a while, actually. We met up in 88 in Iowa City at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. And we hung out, and we really got into what each other was writing. I remember hearing his words, and I say, I like that word. I want to use that word. I think I've used some of his, his words to this very day. And I really like his mind, and I really like how, uh, I don't know, I think he just resembles Jorge Luis Borges, the great fiction writer in his poetry, and a little bit of Neruda, and a lot of bit about himself. He's got a couple of books out. One is called The New Year of Yellow, and a most recent one, American Chew, C-H-E-W, by uh, Burnside Review Press. This poem is called In the Enormous Room of the World. I'm in the quiet room of my mind, in the quiet room in the back of the school. I'm in the enormous room of the world, filled with Ebola, trinkets, and fallen notebooks. My child is in the orthodontist chair with the needles and forks, and I'm so far away. There are trees in the window that want to come inside. But the room is too small. In my head, there is enough room for all of them. I'm a small-minded man. I pick at my fingers and yell at the dogs. The tilt-a-whirl at the summer fair flies off its axis, and I look the other way. In the enormous room of my mind, there is so much quiet. It is as enormous as the room of outer space. There is Burning Man in my mind. There are elephants. Texas gets in there and so do the Asian markets. It's as if my mind were your mind. But I am glad that is not the case. I am glad Joey is a conservative with his own huge head. That lacy drives typhoons through her skull to quiet down her access to chat. All day long she talks about her broken home and the broken things she has taken from it to feel whole. Self-love, bicycles that ride as smooth as falling stars, her sister. Enormity is not a thing to be measured in leaf piles. They are just Leaf piles. My daughters jump inside of them in their enormity and have minds that welcome a craziness that we should all embrace. Manic, yellow, sycamore, leaves tossed to the sky that have no idea how big they are. This is the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. Call me irresistible. Call me irresponsible. Call me Ishmael. That 
is, is that- the answer that Frank Sinatra gave when I said to him, Frank, what is the favorite first line of yours in any American novel? That's amazing. And he vamped. Uh, he was a great reader. He was known for his, his literary tastes. Loved and, Moby Dick. And his tastes in Marinara. To go with the theme of first lines, though, I have prepared a quiz for you, Tom and Laurie. So mm. get out your pencils. Hey. I hate quizzes. Okay, here's the first here's the first question in our quiz. Lolita, light of my life, fire of my well, that, life. That's a hard um, one. I'm, I'm thinking that's James Joyce. And t- no, you were incorrect. And Lori, <laughs> um, I think it's um, oh John Steinbeck. Okay, here's here's the first serious one, and this is this is one this is maybe my favorite first line anybody's ever written in the English language. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Oh, um, uh, 1984. Oh, excellent. Uh, Isn't that a perfect first line? So it is. Great. It's all right. Are you, are you joking? Or are you I'm just... joking a little bit because I do think that the that the first lines that we love mm-hmm. and the last lines that we love, right. they're little clips that bring back the entire novel in a rush. And if they do that successfully, like the be- it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the that that's first sentence goes on and on and on, and we would never put up with it now. But it reminds us of the novel. It reminds us of Dickens, and it, and we feel good. And we, so we say it's a great first line, but it's not necessarily a great first well, line. I, I think that first line does bring back the the experience of reading the novel because immediately, immediately you're thinking, "What world am I in?" and and then, oh yeah, then you're thinking, "Oh, it's a, it's a really bad, ominous world," and it does bring it back for me. And the clock striking thirteen is kind of a genius metaphor genius. for the whole thing because it, it's thirteen. And, yeah, it's, sure. it, and what the the great accomplishment for me of that sentence is that it's it's relatively short and yet encompasses. The feeling of the book in a, in a really I have to agree with Seth on this way. one. Yeah. This is another, what I think is a terrific three-word opening. Mother died today. Yeah, yeah, The Stranger. Yeah, that's you know that's a that's, that's a that's a famous one. That's an excellent. That's really one. good. But let's go let's go back a little bit farther. the The first line of the Bible is in the beginning God created heaven, the heavens and the earth. Is that yes? Is that right. That is the beginning. Right? And the first line of the Gospel of John is in the beginning was the Word. Two very different kinds of openings. Very yes. much so. Right, one a little more metaphysical than mm-hmm. the other. And then the, the opening lines of the of of, of uh, Homer of the Odyssey and the Iliad. Does anybody know them? Mm-mm. Both O single muse kind of openings. Well, the opening line of Henry V. I think it's the opening line. O for a muse of fire, that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. That's pretty fucking good. Yeah, these invocations of the muse, we, we don't do that anymore. We really don't. No, the uh, muse is for rarely good reason. invoked, except, except in the Terence McNally play, A Perfect Ganesh, which hmm. is two middle-aged women traveling to India, and in which they repeatedly quote that, that uh, Henry V line. It was a queer, sultry summer, the summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs, and I didn't know what I was doing in New York. Uh, Sylvia Plath. Excellent. The bell hmm. jar. What do we think of that opening line? Yeah, it's interesting. It's good. Situates us in place. Right. Yes. Is that the job? It's tactile. The uh, electrocution and the heat. What is what is the job of the first line? I don't know. I do know that they, that uh, uh, you know online you can get a writer's first line generator. Oh, okay. Let's do that. Let's generate a few first lines. Yeah. Okay. Aunt Maud said January would always be like the good old days after the amnesty, the day when the parrot bit my dad. I became a millionaire's driver. <laughs> 
No, I mean the jokes. The, the joke there, of course, is that you know, you're anything. trying to get a bunch of information across, mm-hmm. and you're and you're and you're creating mystery and hermeneutic suspense. As we hermeneutic. Say. Hermeneutic suspense. Remember so him do, from Iowa City? Hermeneutic. Define hermeneutic suspense for you know, our the, listeners the, who don't the, have PhDs the, in the, the linguistics. Sus- the suspense that 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 is created by handing your reader a mystery, mm-hmm. right? As an interpretive puzzle that they have to solve, um, which is a little bit different than. You know, plot-based suspense. Right. So stately, plump Buck Mulligan descending the stairs would be a hermeneutic mystery? Yes, right. That's Dickens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, right. That, there's, yes, because you want to, there's a little, there's all sorts of hermeneutic mm-hmm. suspense there, right? Who is who is Buck Mulligan? Mm-hmm. What stairs? Right. Where are we? All, all of that stuff. Are, they're all, it creates mysteries to be solved. And there's that one, and then there's the one that creates the tone of the book in a few short words. The sun shone, having no alternative on the nothing new, the very famous Samuel Beckett, Beckett uh, opening of uh, Murphy, I believe, yeah, uh, completely encapsulates the Beckett philosophy in one one relatively brief sentence and sets up the book that way. Here's a hard one. Which one? Which book is this from? Elmer Gantry was drunk. Mrs. Dalloway say she said she would buy the flowers herself. That, of course, is to the lighthouse. The well. <laughs> How about where's this from? I am an invisible man. Yeah. See, now that's a, that, I believe, is the Claude Rains autobiography. Right. Yeah. <laughs> remember when Snoopy was writing a novel and he could never get past the first line? Do you remember what that first line no. was? It the was first a, line was... It was a dark and stormy night. Right, which turns out actually is the first line of a novel. Yeah, called, it's Bulwer Lytton. Yeah, written, how'd, you, how'd you know that? Because well, he's, fa- he's famous for it, oh. precisely for oh. that. Oh, I, that, I thought in, Snoopy in, was famous for it. In 1830, right? Well, yes, 1830. It goes on. It was a dark and stormy night, semicolon. The rain fell in torrents, except at occasional intervals when it was checked by a violent gust of wind which swept up the streets. For it is in London that our scene lies, rattling along the housetops and fiercely agitating the scanty flame of the lamps that struggled against the darkness. I mean, you know, that's it's not fine. That bad, really. It's not it's that all right. Bad. It's a little purple. I have, I have a personal rule, though, which is don't mention the weather in the first line. Yeah, well, that's Bulwer Lytton ruined that for everyone. Yes, I think that yeah. that is why you feel that way. Yeah. Yes. I wish either my father or my mother, or indeed both of them, as they were in duty, both equally bound to it, had minded what they were about when they begot me. That's pretty good. Tristram Shandy? Yeah. It's only funny if you know it's Tristram Shandy. Yeah, it's just exactly. Not, you know, it's, not, it's not funny it, yet. It feels generic to the yeah. era. Isn't it interesting that some of these first lines are giving us a lot of information, and some of them are only going for a kind of general moodiness, evocative, you know, emotional scene setting. Some are trying to give us the kind of establishing shot we need Mm -hmm. in order to see where we are and what we're doing. Uh, And some are purely rhetorical. A screaming comes across the sky. Yeah, pinching. There we go. Right. Now that's a that's a perfect example of one that only works if it, you know the book. Absolutely. A broken melody. So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Oh. Oh, now we're doing last lines. Because it's the end of the show. Hmm. This is Seth Greenland for Tom Lutz, Lori Weiner, and our producer Jerry Gorin. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. Good night, Radio Land. Good night, Podcastville. We'll be back next week. See you then. Bye.